The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. You know, as many of you get ready for football game this evening and sitting around with friends and eating some good food, I was thinking this week, one, that I really don't care who wins, because the Panthers aren't in it. Um, but, but more so, what I, I read an article about Tom Brady, and it was from a number of years ago, about 14 years ago, and he was asked about winning the Super Bowl at that time three times. And here is this man who has everything, and he basically said, if this is all there is, then what is there? He said, I've won it three times. I've reached the pinnacle of my professional career. I've done and exceeded every goal that's ever been set. And is this all there is? And the interviewer said, well, what's the answer to the question? Is this all there is? And he goes, I don't know. I don't know. And it made me think, this isn't about Tom Brady, but it made me think about uh, a man, Ben Watson, who was on his team for a number of years. Ben is a, a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, a tight end who just retired this year, and many of you may have heard his name. Ben said for the years that he was with the Patriots, he continued to witness for Christ and to share Christ with Tom Brady and to keep saying to him, I have the answer to that question, that what's meaningful in life you won't find in this life. The meaning and the purpose of life, that answering of that profound question, what's the meaning of life, can only be found beyond this life. It can only be found in the God uh, who created all things. It can only be found in and through uh, His Word, which, which explains to us the beauty and the glory of everything that we experience in this life. And points us to our ultimate calling, which is that we're to be in relationship with him, redeemed by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, basking, as it were, for the remainder of our days uh, in the living service of the living God, and then one day being with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth where there is no effect of sin in the world, delighting forever in him That's the purpose of life. If you're here this morning and you maybe had reached the pinnacles of your careers, whatever career that is, and they've left you absolutely unsatisfied, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad that you've come this morning and said there's got to be something more. My hope today is to introduce you to a king who says in this sermon that he preached. We're going back this morning to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're picking up in chapter 6. We finished chapter 5 before Christmas, looking at the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher that ever preached. It's constructed with such incredible beauty and dignity, exactness and precision. And it was this picture in chapter 5 of saying, This is the life most to be envied in the world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are 
the humble. Blessed are the more, those who mourn. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Going through, he's saying, this is blessedness. This is where life has taste again. As you find it in the satisfaction that can only come in God for those deepest hungers and thirsts, you'll be satisfied in him, but you'll never be satisfied anywhere else. Then he said, once you're satisfied in him, you go and you live as light and salt within the world. And you recognize that while living it out, there are certain moral positions that you take. There are certain effects of the law. Uh, Now that Christ has fulfilled the law, but we still live it out. It affects the way we view anger and divorce and, and oaths and all the different things that we do. And now he comes here to chapter six And it's a great place of tension. It's a place where he's saying, now, live out your Christian life. Live out of this place of glory. Live out of this place of deep satisfaction. Live out of that to bring glory and honor to the Lord. But be careful that you don't want to live it out in public so that you bring glory to yourself. You find that tension that Christ brings uh, to bear here. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the Christian life, as it were, the integrity of it and the tension in which we find ourselves. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And next week, we're going to pick up with the Lord's Prayer and look at it for a number of weeks while then continuing on to finish up Matthew chapter 7 this spring. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then that you will have your no reward from your Father who's in heaven. For for thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. 
So the first thing that we're going to consider this morning is a very simple but powerful statement. When you encounter Jesus Christ, he affects every area of your life. When you encounter Jesus Christ, he affects every area of your life. Another way to say it might be that Jesus changes everything. Coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ changes everything. Jesus comes in in relationship to us when we hear the good news of the gospel, that we can't save ourselves by our good works, that one day when we stand before our Creator, that we can't look and claim that we tried to be a good person, that we did good things, uh, that we hope that the, the, the amount of good outweighs the bad. None of us would ever be so audacious to say that we've done no bad, but we would be so audacious as to say the good that we've done outweighs the bad. Many of you come from different backgrounds, different church backgrounds, and it has been hardwired into you to believe that one day you're going to stand before God And you're going to have to let him know all the good things that you did and hope with crossed fingers that it's enough to overcome all the bad that you did. Jesus says this, no, you come into relationship with me by grace through faith, that it is a gift of God, not by works of the law is any man saved, but it is Christ working on our behalf. And taking his perfect righteousness, that alien righteousness that is foreign to us, and when we simply acknowledge by saying, I am unworthy, I cannot save myself, but Christ, I by faith come to you and I choose now today to follow you and give my life fully to you. He says to us, Here's the exchange. I take all of your unrighteousness. I remove it from you as far as the east is from the west. I rip it from your account. I paid it in full in the blood and in the stain and in the crushing of my life and the perfections of who I am given to the Father. And I give to you perfectly my righteousness. I give to you perfectly my record. Now all my good deeds stack up. How do they stack up? And we sit one day before our Heavenly Father and He says uh, in that sort of sense, let me see your record. And you know whose record you hand Him? Yours. But yours has been exchanged with Christ and so it's Christ's perfection. Because He says when He sees you, He sees the beauty and the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that awesome news? Folks, that's the best news that you'll ever hear. And for some of you, you need to have that penetrate deep down in and not leave today thinking that somehow it's your good works that are going to save you. You need to understand today that it's Christ's good works on your behalf that save you. So that one day when and if we have to answer a question to God, and He says, why should I let you in to my heaven? Our only plea is point. Christ. Because He... He ransomed me. He redeemed me. He did this. And Jesus says that is the essence of the gospel. That is salvation. And then when Christ comes in and he gives us his perfect life, now residing in us, the power of the Holy Spirit, which has taken up residency within us, doesn't it now sound absolutely nonsensical for us to say, Jesus, I give you my life, but not my business practices. 
Jesus, I give you my life, but not what I watch on screen privately. I give you my life, but not in the manner in which I date, not in the manner in which I approach sexuality, not in the manner in which I approach my political uh, views within the world. No, I, I want fire insurance. I don't want to go to hell. Who would? But I don't want you messing with everything. And Jesus says, no, you see, it's all or nothing. If I'm giving you all of me, I'm coming into every area of your life and I'm beginning to affect it. That's the Christian life, that it starts to work its way out within our lives every single moment of every single day that we are now called to live this Christian life openly in front of other people. In Peter, in 1 Peter, letter, it is basically the sense of him saying, now live the Christian life in the midst of this pagan world that they see your good works and give glory to God. That they would come and see the beauty of it. But many of you, and particularly some of you raised by a generation ahead of us, were raised to say, well, religion is a private matter. How many of you have heard that religion is a private matter? That's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. To quote Steve Brown, the great preacher. It's from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. Religion is not a private matter. It is the most public matter in all of the world. It's like a married person walking around and living as if they're not married. How crazy is that? A child who has parents walking around and living as if they're orphaned and have no parents in the world. Jesus is saying this, if you come in relationship with me, it affects you so much that the way you live, the way you study at school, the way you drive your car, the way that you give money, the way that you work, the way that you do everything, the way that you play golf, the way that you play bridge, the way that you do anything and everything that you do is now affected by your relationship with the Son of Man, with the King of Glory. You see... The Lord says that the purpose of our life is to bring glory to him so that they may see your good works. They might see your life, verse 16, and give glory to your father who is in heaven. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to what? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's from the Westminster Catechism, Shorter Catechism, question one. Uh, that's a written document. It's underneath Scripture, but what it does is it brings Scripture uh, to us so that we can understand it sometimes better, that the chief purpose of our lives is to bring glory to God, that our lives, our works, everything that we do is to point as a conduit to God because He's the higher good. He's the highest good. He's the best in the most superlative of ways. Isaiah 48 says that this God is so jealous for his glory that he says, I'll share it with no one else. And so we find ourselves now living in this place where we are to live with God for his glory so that many others would see it, not see us per se, see through us to him. Because one day there'll be a reckoning in this sense of saying, did you do all these things for your glory or for mine? Because I'm a God who doesn't share my glory with any other. And so this is where the danger lies. This is where the tension of chapter 5 
and chapter 6 come in. And Jesus, the perfect preacher, preaching the perfect sermon, said this, here's what normally happens. You come into a saving relationship with him. We've been called to be his followers. We understand who we are, that we are blessed in him. We go out and say, I want to be salt and light in the world, that we're going to so let our light shine in the world, that people see our good works. And we go out and we start doing this and we start living and we start marrying and we start giving and we start doing all the things that we're doing for him. And then somewhere evil, which is in the world lurking, has a way of affecting good And so it takes our motives and very subtly, all of a sudden, those good motives turn that we really like people seeing us. We want people to notice us. And Jesus says, be very, very careful. Do not do your good works before men so that they see you. That's the beginning of chapter six. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Beware of what I just taught you. Beware of all of chapter five. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. In order that you take center stage. For then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So, we're to live this Christian life that Christ changes everything. We're to live it in the midst of this tension of living expressly for Christ while publicly in the the eye of all who are around us. So here's the first thing that we need to understand in living this life and living in this tension. There is a temptation for all of us to be seen by others. There is a temptation for all of us to be noticed by others. The reason that I phrase it that way is I don't want you to think that this is not a temptation for everyone else except you. If you want to share this sermon with other people, great, but please don't say, hey, this was a good sermon for someone else. This is a sermon for us. This is a passage of Scripture for us. This is a passage of Scripture for pastors. Because we're all in the same boat. There is a temptation to gain the glory for whatever it is that we do. do. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. This is inherently a human problem. This is the temptation of all humanity because of the fall to steal God's glory, to take center stage, to take the first chair and put him in the second chair. Oh, you're not so bold. You're not so arrogant not to give him some glory, but you still want the majority of it. You'll put a tagline in there. Love that one. What does that mean? The rest of your life. I was listening to a guy this week. He's a preacher's son. He's now a football player. He's opening up a bar in Atlanta. And he says, yeah, you're going to need to go to church twice on Sunday after you come to my bar on Saturday night. There's no glory given to God in that. Come to my bar and sin and blow it out. It's about me and what I'm doing And then go to church. I mean, you've got to go to church. We want a little bit of God. We just don't want him to affect us on Saturday night. You see, the temptation is that we take center stage. And he gives three examples here. He gives the example of giving to the poor, of praying, and of fasting. And I want you to hear this clearly. He is not saying, don't pray, or don't give, don't pray, and don't fast. He begins each of these statements this way. 
when you give to the needy, when you pray, and when you fast. Do you see the assumption underneath each of those three? That as part of your normal Christian life, you are giving to the needy. You are a generous person because you've come into relationship with the most generous God in all of the universe and you realize that your stuff is just your stuff and you're stewarding it and so you become a generous person and you give it away. You recognize that you have the preeminent honor to be a part of the work of the king within the world and so you're a generous person. So when you give and you recognize that you have to be in relationship with this God and you do that through prayer, so when you pray... And you recognize that part of a spiritual discipline within the life that is for most of us almost non-existent, myself included, is fasting, uh, that you're bringing even your physical body into submission under the Lord's rule, uh, that you're saying, I'm willing to give this up in order to come and to be spiritual in, in this area, to see you work in this way. He's saying that when you do these things, be careful. And the first one he uses is that of giving alms. Jesus said, be careful in all three of these areas not to be a hypocrite. Not to be a hypocrite. One of the greatest indictments of the church in modern age is people saying, I don't like going to church. It's filled with hypocrites. Welcome. You're safe here. You've just added to the number by one with your presence. It is a human problem of hypocrisy. Jesus is saying here, be careful though, he's speaking to Christians, he's saying be careful not to be an actor pretending to be something you're really not. Don't pretend to be a generous person when you're really not. Don't pretend to be spiritual and a person of prayer when you really aren't. Don't pretend to be that of willing to give up the physical in order to gain the spiritual. Don't pretend. Let there be an integrity. Let there be a straight line drawn through you. That what happens even at a motive level is really what he's talking about here. He is starting to get into an area where humanity can't dive. I will warn you, as I have warned you before, be careful of determining motive for someone else and assigning motive to someone else. Someone cut you off in the road and you say, that person did it on purpose. Really? You were sitting next to them, conversing with them, and they said, watch me cut you off. We don't know motive, but we love to assign motive for people. We love to get in. Jesus is saying your motive at every level, and he's starting to cut to the motive level. And he says here, caring for others, giving alms. They were not giving for the glory of God or even for the benefit of the needy. They were giving for the praise of men. He said this, basically, there were trumpets sounding either physically, trumpets were sounding, that in the temple it was taught or said that there would be trumpets sounding at certain times within the day, that you would then come to temple and give your alms for the poor, that you would go and do that. Others said that there were big brass uh, bowls basically at the temple and they would make a sound when you put your money in. And so you wanted to make sure that you just happened to toss it so it would be loud and people would hear it clanging in there to know that you gave a certain amount of money. Others think that maybe people literally blew their own horn. Hey, I'm going to temple to give to the poor. Oh, I, I can't have lunch with you right now. I'm going to the temple to give to the poor. Oh, I'd love to stop and talk, but I'm on my way to generously give to the poor uh, who need me uh, to help them. He's saying basically here, you're not giving, you're buying. You're not giving, you're buying. He's saying, you're not being generous, you're being a purchaser. You are buying the accolades of men. 
You are using the beautiful gift of generosity for your own means. He says you're gaining the glory out of that. You've received your reward in full. We'll unpack that briefly in a moment. So he says be careful about giving. That's why in some churches, they put the giving in the back and they don't take up offerings because they don't want people to notice, to make sure that they're seen in that. There's a day coming, most likely, in America when churches are going to lose their 501c3 status. And there is absolute terror within pulpits around the country of when that day happens. Because what would happen when people don't get a tax benefit for giving their dutiful 10% to the Lord? Or their more than 10% to the Lord? Jesus would say, what does it matter? Enjoy the benefit now, but if it goes, it shouldn't have any effect on you at all. Unless that's why you're giving. To make sure that you're known. To make sure that the building's named after you, to make sure uh, that there's a plaque that shows all the big givers. By the way, just to let you know, it's a deep-held belief within our church that so you'll never see a plaque that shows the different givers within our church. There's not a bronze star, gold star, silver star. We don't want to know. And by the way, just as a little aside, I don't know what any of you give. I don't want to know. Because I don't want to be drawn to certain ones of you and not drawn to others of you. But we don't know what the left hand does from the right hand. Jesus is saying, just give out of a good and pure heart. So be careful when you pray. When you pray, make sure that you pray in private. And that when you pray, don't use a lot of words. There's no need to be all flowery. Some of you have never read the King, or maybe you've read the King James Bible, but you don't speak in Old English. But oh, when you pray... And thou, O dearest Father, the forgiving of thine this, it's like when you're around somebody who doesn't speak Spanish, but they order at Fiesta Fresh. I'd like the burrito, and I'd like the, just say the words. What do you want from people to notice that you can speak King James or that you've read the Bible in that way? He said, just speak. Just pray simply in that. We've created, you've worked very hard within the church so that you can get rid of ums. And here's the new Christian um. It's Lord. Lord, Lord, thank you for today, Lord. And Lord, we just, Lord, thank you, Lord, for, so just pray simply. Lord, thank you for today. For food, for raiment, for life, for opportunity, for friendship and fellowship, we thank thee, O Lord. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the best prayer you'll ever pray. You know why? Jesus said it is. <laughs> he said, when you go and pray, pray this. There's no need for all the flowery language. There's no need for everybody to notice you praying in the streets. Our Lord was not and is not impressed with a lot of words. He is impressed with what the heart is saying. And the final thing he mentions is fasting. And all I'll say about fasting is, why do you fast? It'd be good to have a theology of fasting. But then when you fast, he says, keep it in secret. 
Make sure that no one notices. Now, that's difficult when you're going out to lunch with people and different things like that. But it's you checking your motive level. Had some friends in Memphis years ago who were going to fast for 40 days for Lent. And I said, why are you fasting? I thought, well, I'm going to try this too. And I was talking to them and I said, why are you fasting? They said, well, it's Lent and, you know, we've heard that it's good for us physically to fast. I was like, well, then why don't you fast in March? Why don't you fast in July? Now, they didn't say it, but why in the world would they be fasting at Lent and not some other time of the year? Just to make sure subtly everybody noticed. A little more spiritual. Jesus saying, be careful. Your reward has already been received in full. So, what do we do? What do we do when our tendency turns towards the accolades of men and away from the beauty of what God offers to us? Here's the answer. The answer to this tension and temptation is to find our satisfaction of being seen by God alone. To find our satisfaction in being seen by God alone. He says three times in this passage, 4, 6, and 18, that your father who sees you in secret will reward you. Folks, there's bad teaching within the church today that says there is no punishment and there is no reward. That punishment and reward should have no motivating factor within the Christian life. It should just be a pure life of loving Jesus. Folks, that's not biblical. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words in the sinful and adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. What was he saying in that statement? Be afraid. He's saying there's punishment for bad. There's punishment, as it were. If you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. If you do improperly, there's going to be consequence. There was a paternal beauty to that. Parents, isn't that what you say when there's a curfew? If you come home at 11.01 and the curfew is at 11, there will be consequence. It motivates us. Don't be afraid of the motivation. One of the greatest motivations in all of the world that's been taken from the church is the motivation of the fear of damnation in hell. And here's how it's couched now. Oh, that church? That church is one of those fire and brimstone churches. Like that's a bad thing. Folks, one of my greatest motivations for sharing the gospel with you today that we were talking, we have a friend who dropped dead in the bathroom last week. He didn't go into the bathroom expecting to drop dead. One of the greatest motivations that you have today is if you drop dead, you have to give account for your life. And if your life is all about you, there is hell and damnation. And at some level, that should drive you to Jesus. To go, today, I'm going to make sure it's right. And today, I'm coming out of fear, but I will fall in love. Today, I'm coming out of obligation, but I know this. He is so beautiful that he will overwhelm my fear and I will have love. And it's not, it's as long, it is not bad on that side and it is not bad on the reward side. He says here, there is a reward for doing good. God sees all things. We don't have time to go into all of that. But if you go and read Psalm 139, you'd recognize God sees all things. And it says that he punishes that which is wrong and that he rewards that which is good. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3. He said, some of you will build with gold, silver, precious stones, others with wood, hay, and straw. Each one's works will become manifest for the day. We'll disclose it one day when Jesus returns because it'll be revealed by fire. And if the work that anyone built, uh, has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Here's what I'll tell you about the reward system of heaven. I don't understand it fully, but I know this much. Here's the reward. The reward is more of Christ. 
It's more of the Father's pleasure in your life. And you're going, well, that's not really satisfying. Oh, it should be the most satisfying thing in all the world. To have the pleasure of your heavenly Father who smiles upon you. If you come and you come to a person and you look at them and they have a lot of money and you say, I'm going to marry that person for their money, you're a mercenary. You're using them for their money. But if you fall in love with a person and you find that your lives line up and your affections are drawn to that person and you say, I want to marry that person, marriage is then the reward of love. Money isn't the reward of love. Marriage is the reward of love because marriage is the consummation. It is the completing of love. And it's so it's the same way in the Christian life that what we desire more than anything else from the Father is His smiles of delight upon us. And the way that we gain that is living this life of giving, of prayer, of fasting, of living the Christian life in such a way that says this, no one else notices. No one else is going to see me in this. No one knows what I did or what I gave. But one person does. And that one person, knowing that he's smiling on me for what I've done in private, oh, that is satisfaction for my soul. I don't need the accolades of men. They're fleeting at best. Here today and gone tomorrow. What I did was good today and it'll be determined as bad tomorrow. I'm walking in every day trying to gain the approval of people who are fickle. But yet now I know that I serve a God who is not fickle, who is constant and consistent. And I know this, that I have his smiles. And that smile, that loveliness, that beauty, it satisfies my deepest longing in my heart and soul. Folks, that's the motivation of the Christian life. So when you consider these things, we wrap up and we're running a little bit long. I'm sorry. What do you do with it? You live in that tension you're considering these things, here's what we need to do. Honestly face this reality in your life. Check your motives. Only you can check your motives. Only you can really know. Invite somebody in who loves you and talk about it. Ask the questions, what's your true audience? What is your honest desire or motive? Printed for you in your bulletin is a quote by John Gertzner, the wonderful Presbyterian pastor in Pittsburgh, or who lived in Pittsburgh. He said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, but your damnable good works. You see, the Christian repents both of her sins and her righteousness. We repent of, I did a good thing, but I did it for the wrong motive. I did a good thing, but I'm upset that no one noticed in the midst of that. And if you wake up every morning and you think this way, and I'll close with this quote as we come to the table from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, when you wake up in the morning, we should immediately remind ourselves and recollect that we are in the presence of God. It is not a bad thing to say to ourselves before we go any further. Throughout the whole of this day, everything I do and say and attempt and think and imagine is going to be done under the eye of God. He is going to be with me. He sees everything. He knows everything. There is nothing I can do or attempt, but God is fully aware of it all. Thou, God, seest me. It would revolutionize our lives if we always did that. You're invited now to a table of a God who says, I invite you to repent both of your bad and your good and come to the only one 
who can satisfy your deepest longings. Let's pray.